The subject for the evening talk is the <coughs> nature of the personality. Sometimes when we pick up the, uh, some of these uh, um, popular magazines which are available, we are exposed to the endless litany of success and failure stories. And sometimes when we read these uh, personal accounts, particularly of the, the success stories which are so frequently mar marketed, we look and wonder what it is that uh, is the criteria for the person's success and the person, whoever he or she is, may like to report what they regard as how they achieved a successful status, a successful position in life. And it would appear that there are certain common factors which um, contribute to that. Uh, one of them is uh, knowledge on a particular area of field which a person wishes to um, get involved in. Another is uh, the force of desire, the the uh, act of will, um, the determination and wish to pursue wholeheartedly whatever that interest and focus is, and also a, a factor which is sometimes uh, referred to as the element of good fortune, the element of chance or luck, so that through will, uh, knowledge, the particular circumstances and some inexplicable factors, something comes together and then this person in themselves, socially or whatever, is regarded as being a successful person. And this, um, what should we say, model, if not uh, ideology, is uh, frequently spoken about in various degrees and I think quite often we don't realize the way that that affects and shapes our thinking and our way of relating in life. And of course, one of the background influences of knowledge, desire, will, and luck too is that there is a background of some element of unsatisfactoriness, something lacking, something missing, and then this becomes the, the driving force for oneself. In, in that, quite often with that kind of background and that the way that the personality is conditioned by us, we often then imagine that we are lacking in all of these areas or departments, so to speak. There is frequently the view arising in oneself that one doesn't know enough about whatever the interest is. So then there is this fatal attraction to going back to school and, and we imagine that the accumulation of knowledge will provide us with an enough knowledge. It's very unlikely that it ever will and the accumulation of knowledge tends to reveal how little one knows rather than how much. Sometimes we think we haven't got enough 
uh, drive and uh, willpower in our life and that if we had more of that then we really would get on in life and we could then trample over even more people than we are already. And so sometimes we start doing things to exercise our mental uh, muscles and prove to ourselves that we have got uh, willpower. And this we find ourselves exercising, sometimes rather unfortunately, in the meditation hall or in doing um, severe forms of uh, physical exercises which make us very ripe for doing long-term damage to ourselves. And then sometimes we have the view that um, life never um, has treated us well anyway, so why should we have any good luck, good fortune, and things come together for us? So we, we easily breed, like mosquitoes in our mind, these thoughts inside of us, lack of knowledge, lack of will, and lack of good luck. And here we are, in, in fact, reversing, and that is we might call the beginnings of spirituality, this whole value structure on all three. Could we have an appreciation for lack of knowledge? Could we have an appreciation for lack of will? And could we have a, an appreciation for not being concerned with luck? And perhaps we could then begin from, a, as it were, a completely different basis and a completely different way of being in this world. And I think once one begins to start looking in a fundamentally different way to the conventions, then one is already in a radical perception of one's relationship to life, and one is also making oneself available for other ways of looking. In this influence of the way the personality is conditioned by the social events and the, and the rather simplified form which I just des described, it's not only that it has an impact on us in that way, in our personality, but it also is the breeding ground for separation through the form of individualism. And of course, here particularly in the United States and elsewhere, we have become addicted to individualism and it is a very major ism and it's an ism which very sadly and tragically tends to set human beings up in competition with each other and constantly having to prove oneself in comparison with other people. This is what individualism does when we have so much identified with the construction, the idea of me, the idea of self, the idea of I as a separate, independent, unique special human being who deserves this, that and the other. And are we actually thinking this way? Are we actually living our life 
imagining and believing that we are separate, independent, unique, special human beings who deserves everything that life offers. Because if we are, we may succeed again, but that success will have to be others' failure because that's in the nature of personality. And sometimes we see all of this going on. It crosses our mind, we get concerned about the competitiveness, the individualism, the struggles that take place, the obsession with knowledge and willpower and all of that. But sometimes is it that we, we sense that, we get concerned about that, but the concern's not strong enough in a way, not impacting enough for us to say, I don't want to live like that. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be trapped in that way. I don't want to be st stuck obsessively in that way. So that there is, of course, the appropriate use for knowledge. Of course there is appropriate use for will, appropriate uh, appreciation of things in life. But to be bound to that day in and day out, that's something else again. I just saw a postcard. A friend wrote to a friend, and uh, hello, how are you, postcard. And the person put, I think, in the last sentence, or in the last sentence, or to, well, I'd, things are going fine, but I'd be much happier if I had more money. And this is a common, common thought. But the thought is so common that the thought itself is spread. We spread it to each other. We're constantly telling each other this. And that generates the seed of dissatisfaction. That then generates the outcomes. Knowledge, will, power, how can I get? And when is there going to be any time, any point in our life when one says to oneself, enough is enough? What's going to actually make the difference to us? When this sort of thing gets underway, this philosophy of individualism in, and its very unsatisfactory aspects of it, which I'm of course referring to, and recognizing there are the, the satisfactory things, but they're never so interesting to talk about. But with the unsatisfactory factors to it, what also goes along with this is that we then look outside of ourself for some kind of answer or solution to things, generally in the form of an individual and we begin to imagine and believe that somewhere someone is containing the answers and is going to transform us. 
So we find ourselves sometimes extremely polarized in our view. Either one, individualism, I have got to, to do it all by myself, and I would say this is an absolutely hopeless idea, and it ought to be abandoned. And the equally hopeless idea is that some other individual can directly or indirectly do it, whatever it is, it is all for me. Transform me, change me, enlighten me, liberate me, or whatever. And we're fascinated with this world of individual, individualism. Let me give you a, a clear, a rather, perhaps a clear practical illustration of the way that this um, struck me just uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, I had a call from, I live in uh, Totnes in England, and I had a call from BBC uh, television, and they said to me that, or the, the, the researcher said, that they are planning to make a series of four one-hour documentaries on places of significant pilgrimage on the uh, earth. And they uh, want to, they have uh, quite a substantial budget, the reporter, she told me, and they have, are in the process of selecting four places as uh, places for uh, the documentary. Uh, one of them is uh, Mecca. Uh, another is a place, uh, I forget the name, in South America of the Incas where people have been making pilgrimage there for many, many centuries. Uh, a third is um, um, Jerusalem, Christian pilgrimage. And the fourth, and it was what sparked the telephone call, was to Budgaya, the place of the Buddha's uh, awakening, which again is a major center of pilgrimage for Buddhas, Buddhists all over the world. And then the reporter said, um, well, we want to reach a much wider audience, and most people hearing the word religion or uh, pilgrimage would prefer to turn over to Twin Peaks or something else. So, as most of us would. And in, so they felt that the only possible way that they could really attract people uh, and, to, and have a large audience to watch the program is to have a well-known international celebrity to uh, be uh, acting in the role of being the commentator to the documentary. And they had already approached for um, uh, Mecca and had the uh, agreement, and that is of the uh, former um, Prime Minister of uh, Pakistan, Benazir uh, Bhutto. And, of course, there's a whole uh, story there, of course, as why Benazir Bhutto lost her, play, her role as Prime Minister, and I think you should ask your president about his influence in that, but it's another story. <laughs> and they're then approaching somebody to, I don't, can't remember who, with regard to the Christian pilgrimage. And so, of course, I was immediately curious as to who they have in mind 
to make the documentary on um, Budgaya. And they said that the person that they are approaching, somebody that you, many of you will know, is a certain actor, I think he's from New York, named Richard Gere. And he, he has, in fact, a couple of years ago when Henrietta and I were in Budgaya, he was in Budgaya and has um, uh, committed himself to his uh, credit to a lot of, of engagement with Buddhist practices. He's become a friend of the Dalai Lama, has opened Tibet House on uh, Manhattan, and I too also feel he'd be a very uh, suitable uh, person. But Again, what, it's, what stood out in this was not so much who the individuals are here, but much, much, much more the, the, the fact that the individual individualism draws the attention rather than the theme, rather than the content. And this is the real, I think, sign of the times that we live in. And, we're, and I'm, say, I'm saying here, do we have to be prisoners, because that's what we are, prisoners of adulation and infatuation with individualism, either of oneself or of another, and all the consequences of it. And it would seem very much in situations like that, say, when we come into a retreat, we appear, and we appear to bring our individuality here. And what we mean by that is that we bring the package of our past, recent and distant, into this situation. And through that, we begin to see, as we perhaps have been seeing today, some of the uh, movements of our mind. What have we actually, in the course of our day, really have been noticing about our self? It's not really our self, but really talking purposes. What our self, what way is that showing itself during the course of today? What's been actually clearly standing out to you in a very ordinary state of just sitting and walking? Sometimes, and this is where the element of faith can come in, one arrives in a situation and prior to being here, you've had some thoughts about being here, and you've had some thoughts about your life, about the condition, the state of your life, and you've perhaps had the view that when you're here, I will work on this part of myself. I will look at this part of myself. And that certainly can express a certain responsibility. We've, you've also perhaps have thoughts about your, uh, some of the present roles that you have in life. And do you actually want to persist with them? It might be the working role, it might be the relationship role, or whether you want to take up a new role. And one hopes and wishes and, and anticipates that this, through thoughts and feelings and concerns, will be perhaps a, a feature of what it is to be here. And therefore an opportunity to look at these things and work these things out and through. 
But there are others of you who have um, not come in with any preconceived idea. You've just arrived here. You perhaps didn't even have time to think about what life would be like here. You're so busy elsewhere. Or one just felt it isn't necessary to think about what it would be to be in this situation. The uncanny thing is about all of that, that all too often how one thinks prior to a situation doesn't necessarily correlate with what it is to be here. How one thinks prior to a situation doesn't necessarily connect with what it is to be here. So one may think, God, when I get into IMS, I'm going to have to be looking at this and working all of this out and, and I've got all this going on and it might be a completely different board game altogether. Another person may sense and feel, well, my life seems to be going very smoothly. There's nothing much going on in my life. So this retreat, therefore, should be a relatively quiet, peaceful retreat. And no sooner has one got one's legs uh, cross-legged, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> so the thought prior to an event and the character, the nature of the event, the thought about one's personality and the nature of one's personality today may not be working together. What does it tell you? What does that say? Because it's not obviously it doesn't just happen here. What does it say about the gap, the, the expectation, the thought about and the character, the actual nature of the event. And since this can repeat itself so frequently in life, it means, I think, very easily we get used to the idea that because I do other things with a certain routine in my life, there's a certain regimentation in my life, there's a, therefore there's a certain expectation. I can bring this idea, this regimentation, expectation into everything. What does that tell us? So what we find today is what is occurring for us today. When we're experiencing what is occurring for us, quite often it brings its own concern and its own investigation, its own reflection and inquiry. So if today, for some, the interpretation of today is God, there's a hell of a lot going on in myself today. Confusion, agitation, fear, disappointment, jealousy, comparing, judging. That whole show is revealing itself today. It's going on today. Quite often, the thought which will arise with the state of mind, with the state of the personality, is why is it going on? Why am I like this? Why do I experience in, in this way? And then, at times, we w when the why 
thinking arises, there's the wish to find the cause for this as the effect. Why is my back hurting? Why is my mind wandering so much? Why am I so tired today? Why am I feeling so agitated? Why am I so judgmental about everybody else who is here, whatever? <coughs> so, the, so there's a state of mind, the state of mind arises and the why arises. The why, very important this please, the why is useful if in finding a cause it makes a difference to the effect. Otherwise it's a complete and utter waste of time and life. Understand? One can say, oh this is going on with me. And one says, why is it going on? Oh, it's because I, because I, my parents, they, they, they're favourites to get most of our projections these days. We've made a, a, a new religion out of it. And, or the past situation, or the relationship, or the latent patterns, or whatever it might be. All, all of that can be useful to see conditions, to see causes. But its usefulness is not in the knowledge of the cause, but in the impact on the effect. If it doesn't change the effect, it's been an utter waste of time and waste of money. So when we're giving consideration to causes and effects, as we will be naturally, spontaneously, in these uh, days here together, it just occurs by itself, then be serious about the interest in the why, only if it's going to actually influence the consequences. Otherwise, it's the same old preoccupation with having knowledge and thinking. Thinking that knowledge per se is of some merit of itself. Only merit if it transforms, if it changes in a way which one knows in one's heart of hearts it's a beneficial change. But then there's the faith factor in the transformation of personality out of suffering and confusion into something other. And the faith factor, the non-personal element here, matters. So sometimes it's quite necessary, and we'll talk about this of course as the days go by, to look at who we are in our life today to see the relationships which influence the way we are today, to see the capacity to exploring, the capacity to change that. But the faith element, the trust element, is something else, something rather magical, rather mystical. And in this case is that the process of meditation, the process of silence and stillness, which is non-personal, non-individual, we all make it happen together, no individual is responsible for it, either any of the three of us, of course, or anybody else, it's a, a collective, codependent uh, happening together, that the beauty of it and the, and the mystery of it is 
change of transformation of personality in a valuable and insightful way can occur without any questions of cause and effect. Without any knowledge of how, why things took place in the past. Without any reflection on the past or, or reference to it. That some things can occur which is healing and integrating in, we might say, in the atmosphere itself. That things can, as it were, become right in the atmosphere itself and no sense whatsoever of working anything out. And it can't be explained. Thought cannot comprehend this because thought only knows cause and effect and hows and whys and when and wherefores and that's the usefulness of thought. But when we touch on the silences and the stillnesses and the collectiveness of things, then things can be resolved and we haven't made any effort to resolve them except the small gesture of being in such a situation. Resolved through no interest to resolve. How about that? So we, in these things, we, we say, yes, the personal and the personality structure and the influences of time and that relationship are very, very important. And there's much invaluable insight in, the, in those areas there. But equally, we're saying the process of meditations itself, the, what is being established together, that has tremendous authority to it. And the authority is such that there's much testimony to the changes of consciousness that take place. Sometimes, as one or two people mentioned in uh, small uh, uh, groups today, is there's the willingness to participate in the situation, and then there's the occurrence there and the use of meditation method and technique. To some degree, the meditation method and technique, such as the breath, is to give some support to the consciousness. It's a kind of encouragement in a way and is a reminder to us about bringing as much of our presence to the present as possible. Sometimes some schools, I think, get the idea, and I can't say I'm in agreement with it, but get the idea that one really needs to perfect the tool. One takes the tool and then one just works with the tool again and again and again and again and perfects the tool and through perfection of the tool will come perfection of mind, purity of mind or whatever. I have my doubts. I can say I have my doubts after quite a few years and half my life in direct involvement in this work, whether it is worthwhile giving so much value 
to a specific meditation object such as breath. I might be doing myself out of a career here, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that being with the breath has its validity and its usefulness. But what I would say too, noticing and being clear about the state of experience when one is not with the breath is equally as valuable. If one gets identified and attached to hanging on to one's breathing as an exclusive meditation activity, I think there is a possibility of restricting the mind. And we want to liberate it, not restrict it. And therefore, those times when we are not with the breath, which, let's be honest with ourselves, is 99.99, <laughs> and really, you know, and it's we should be feel satisfied, I'm not exaggerating. And the times when something else is going on is the predominant event. So being with the breath is an invitation to us to notice and be acutely aware of what the experience is of not being with the breath. The breath has no inherent value unto itself, it's very useful because it helps us to connect with breathing, with living, and it helps us to show when we're spaced out or when we're daydreaming or fantasizing or whatever. And therefore, I say both forms of experience from human standpoint in life genuinely have equal value. Be with the breath, but for God's sake, know what's going on when you're not with it as quickly as possible. With the breathing experience and the non-breath experience, one doesn't get any extra points for counting up the breath. And as one person once told me, I forget the figure, it was some horrendous figure, a person claimed to have observed 300 and something successive breaths. And my response to that was, what a pity. <laughs> and because one is get so easily into the accumulating game and to having more game and a succeeding game and one is just substituting one expression of it into another and we're saying what's going on right now what's this desire that's going on and movement that's going on there In that, in the process of breathing, in the times of uh, not being with the breath, sometimes the simple and direct awareness of what it is to not be with the breath, what's happening there, one notices that, and then quite spontaneously, without a lot of effort and willpower, the, there's the renewal of attention with the breathing. So it's, I don't think we need to be in a situation of having to drag our attention back to the breath uh, again and again. But in relaxing through the mutual support of each other into the situation, the breath can, as it were, stand out much more easily and effortlessly for us. 
So just as it might well have been our first major experience when we emerged into our, this world, just as it might be our last experience when we depart from this world, when we settle into being not only with ourselves and with each other and with the atmosphere, the breath rather naturally begins to stand out more. It's not as though we have to go hunting to be with the breath, hunting to find our nose, whatever. It just it becomes a, an event which we notice without effort, without striving, without willpower. And so in that there's again a certain absence of knowledge, conventional knowledge. There is an absence of will. There's a being with what's happening, whether breath or not breath. And we're being present to all of that. So it's going against certainly much of the conventional way we use our life, our personality and our mind. And we're saying here, please have faith in it. Have faith in this. Have faith in your absence of knowledge. Have faith in your loss of the driving will in terms of direction of your life or whatever it might be. Have faith in, in being without all of the superstitions and all of the, the charms and the good luck things and all of that. Just be present. Just allow that. And see what that which is so alternative to the conventional, see what that means for us. See what happens for us and the way that affects the will, affects the knowledge, affects our way of relating to life. And then the teachings of enlightenment and liberation, of engaged spirituality, of concerned action, have a, have a whole different sense for you. So let's keep faith with the day, with the sittings, with the meditations, with the breath and with the non-breath experiences. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. Thank you.